Welcome to my podcast, Living with Ovarian Cancer. My name is Diane Evans-Wood and I'm one of many women who are living with ovarian cancer. I want to give women like me a voice to share with you what it's like to live with ovarian cancer. We will cover a whole range of aspects related to diagnosis, treatment, recurrence and well, just about everything in between. I hope you find our honest, candid but often humorous conversations not only useful but also uplifting. So without further ado, settle down and listen to my conversation today. Welcome to episode 17. Today I have the pleasure of talking to Hannah Lane. Now I follow Hannah on social media and she's doing some amazing awareness of ovarian cancer, especially for the month of March, which in case you don't know already is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month in the UK. Anyway, I'm sure Hannah will tell us more about that later in the show once we've got to know her. But before I introduce Hannah, please could I ask you to subscribe to the show and rate rate it five star, of course, after you've listened. It really helps the show to be more visible for people to find us. So on with the show. Welcome, Hannah. Hi. Hi. Can you tell me more about you, Hannah? Where you live, who you are, how old you are, that sort of thing. I'm 38. I have to double check with myself because I've got 35 stuck in my head because that's when I was diagnosed. I'm about 38, <laughs> uh, Huddersfield in West Yorkshire. Yeah. I've got two children. Bob eight has just gone three and Neve will be seven in a couple of days. I'm not working at the moment. I did go back for a couple of weeks yeah. last month, which was January. I just realised it wasn't for me. No. Um, so now I'm at home with my two children and doing everything I can to raise awareness. You're very busy doing that at the moment. I mean, we'll come to that a bit later in the show, but I, I really admire you for everything that you're doing. But let's go back to your story. So can you tell me what was it that you made you think there was something wrong to make you feel that you needed to go to the GP before you were diagnosed? It started out with constipation, mm. which I'd had on and off most of my adult life. Yeah. Uh, I'd just been on a Hindu for one of my really good friends for a weekend. And, and I really clearly remember coming home and thinking, I've not eaten and drunk properly. Bobby was only a few months old. He'd been born in the December. Yeah. So I'd kind of let loose quite a lot Um, made the most of being without the children for the weekend and I remember really vividly coming home and thinking I haven't looked after myself very well and I'm quite constipated yeah but I had you know things in the cupboard from being pregnant because I'd I'd had it then as well wasn't too wasn't well wasn't worried at all to begin with and it it just seemed to carry on sort of Probably not on a daily basis, but sort of maybe once a week, once a fortnight, I think. Oh, yeah, I'm still not going properly. Mm. I'll take some more laxatives. And it was probably a few weeks before I went to the doctors and said, 
I've been constipated for a few weeks. Mm. I've tried laxatives and they're not really working. What else can I do? So I was prescribed different laxatives and it, it was just sort of on and off where I'd go back to the doctors and say, I'm still not working. So they tell me to increase it or give me a different type or yeah. give me advice on drinking more, eating better. Mm. Maybe it was just because my body was readjusting and going back mm. to normal after having a baby. Um, I was a busy mum on maternity leave, but thinking about going back to work. Everything was quite stressful. Yeah. But at the same time, I didn't feel like that really explained why I had the constipation. It didn't. Mm. It didn't quite seem like the right answer to me, but. Was there anything else that you that you could think back that oh yeah like any bloating or anything else was it just the constipation that you noticed to begin with it was just the constipation yeah. um I probably was a bit bloated but because I've not long had a baby yeah I probably didn't notice it as much as if it had happened at a different time. But yeah, certainly towards the point of me being diagnosed, I was nine months pregnant again. Um, So I went from having the constipation to then having difficulty eating. I'd get full after a couple of mouthfuls. Quite often feel like I needed to make myself sick because I felt like I had a lot of pressure in my stomach. Yeah. Just thinking back on what else I had. Heartburn, a bit of backache. And I was going to the doctors regularly. Yeah, was this over a period then, of months then in the end? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. so it started in the April and I'd say up until August I was still being told it was my body going back to normal, it was IBS. IBS was something I was told it was quite a lot. When I had the heartburn, yeah, they explained, and it was more than one doctor because I'd see someone different every time I went and I went to A&E once or twice as well with various pains and the heartburn especially I remember being told that was because I was so constipated and it was pushing mm. my stomach and, and everything up so that was causing the heartburn so crikey so did they, did they ever do any any scans or anything like that for I you I had an x-ray when I went to A&E yeah and they said yeah your bowel is really com- you know compacted yeah. or impacted whichever one they say yeah. um you're constipated and basically you need to look after yourself and take more laxatives yeah so everything that I was suffering all the little signs that were there all the symptoms that we now or that I now know were kind of dismissed as well that's your constipation that's causing it yeah. You can't eat very much. You're having difficulty eating because your bowel is pushing your stomach up and you don't have much room left in your stomach. But nobody was saying, but why no. are you constipated? I did have a colonoscopy. That was probably sort of August, September. Right. Towards the point that they were starting to think there was something more going on. Yeah. And that came back saying there was no sign of cancer in the bowel they could see that the colon was being squashed yeah but they couldn't see any signs of cancer within it so that and along with a few other things that 
doctors and nurses had said to me over the months falsely reassured me that it was nothing to worry about and that it probably was just IBS. Yeah, that's common, isn't it? Where I, yeah. I don't know about you, but in, in our community with ovarian cancer, so many women say, oh, I was just fobbed off as having IBS, you know, and, and when that yeah. goes on and on and on and doesn't get any better, and then it doesn't get it doesn't get investigated and it, it, it kind of fails us doesn't it There's yeah it wrong. does especially when the guidance and when you know when you've seen adverts on tv and mm. magazines even in the doctor's surgery yeah where they've got posters saying if you've got symptoms for more than a couple of weeks it could be a sign that there's something yeah more serious going on we, we need to investigate but so many people mm. are told they've got IBS. Yeah. I hear it time and time again from people with ovarian cancer or members of yeah. their family are messaging me saying, oh, my mum or my grandma, whoever it was, was told it was IBS. And yeah. when they caught it, it was too late for them. Yeah. So what happened then? How, how did they actually then diagnose you, Hannah? One of the doctors that I've seen a few times, she's one of the... Um, partners I saw her it was probably sort of September I think I went to see her again and just said look it's been going on for months my symptoms are now progressing and mm. you know I'm getting worse feeling more uncomfortable she said I want you to be checked out for Crohn's disease typically Crohn's is diarrhea but I have mm. seen people suffer with constipation with it so I'm going to refer you um, to a colorectal specialist and we'll get you checked out yeah I thought right okay that's fine finally doing something um, if it's Crohn's my, well I was really upset by the thought mm. that it might be Crohn's disease but I thought it must be something to do with the bowel because that seems to be what what's giving me the most issue but we know it's not cancer because they've checked. But she said, as part of the referral to the colorectal team, I need to do a blood test to rule out bowel and ovarian cancer. Mm. I remember her really clearly saying, don't worry, you've got no family history of either of them. And ovarian cancer especially is typically postmenopausal women. Yeah. So I didn't, look into anything I just said yeah I'll do the blood test didn't cross my mind that I might get a positive result for either of them up until that point I wasn't even aware that you could do a blood test to check for cancer markers mm -hmm. it's not something I'd ever heard of so we did the blood test a week later I phoned up to get the results and the receptionist said oh there's been an issue with your sample we need you to do it again something to do with it had been labelled incorrectly. Mm. So I went down the next day, did it again. That night, I barely slept because I was so uncomfortable and in, in loads of pain. Ended up taking a codeine, yeah. which at the time I thought, I know I shouldn't be doing because it can cause constipation and that's what my main issue is. Mm. But I'm in so much pain and so uncomfortable. I just need something mm. to help me sleep. Of course you did. So I went down to the doctors the next day and said look this is getting 
unbearable now. I can barely look after my children. If I'm changing my son's nappy on the floor, I'm struggling to get back up. Mm. I need something. And she said, well, you've had the blood test. You've had the referral to colorectal. That's a two-week referral. We're now a week into it, so you should be seeing them next week. I don't want you to take any more codeine because it could make your constipation worse. I'll prescribe you some mint tablets um, to try and ease things for you. But Mm. hopefully you'll get some answers when you see colorectal. So I came, went to the doctor's, got my prescription, came home. I don't think I'd even taken my coat off and my phone rang. And it was the same doctor ringing me saying, we've got your blood test results. And I thought she was saying the one from the week before needed redoing because it was incorrect. And so mm-hmm. kind of got cross wires and I was saying, yeah, yeah, I've done it. I did it yesterday. She said, no, we've got your results. I need you to come in and see me. Yeah. I need to discuss these results with you. So instantly I panicked. Like and said, was, yeah. Yeah. And said, I don't, I don't want to wait. Just tell me now. Yeah. So there was a bit of backwards and forwards with her really reluctant to tell me over the phone. And I said, you just have to tell me now. I can't now sit at home and wait for a few hours till I can see you. Yeah. So she said, we've got your marker, we've got your blood test results back. Bowel cancer marker is absolutely fine, but the ovarian cancer marker is showing out of the normal range. And I could barely tell you what she said to me afterwards. It's just everything just kind of shut down. It's uh, quite surreal, I mean, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Jules. It's, it's mm-hmm. I, I don't, you can't even really put it into words, can you? No, when you've been no. told something like that. Uh, but I do remember her saying, You need to come down and see me today because I need to do an internal examination and I need to refer you to the gynecology team. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, more tests will be carried out from that point. So a few hours later, then I went down to the doctors, saw her, she did an internal examination and she said, you've got something in your cervix. I'm going to refer you to the gynecology team. It's two week turnaround for an appointment. They're going to look at your cervix, see what it is. She said, from my point of view, it looks like it might be a polyp. I don't think it's anything to be alarmed about. But I can't say for definite that it's not. But they will tell you more when they see you. Was it the CA125 that was raised in your blood? Yeah. 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 And and she thought that that meant that you might have a polyp. Well, no, she saw when she did an internal, she saw a polyp. Right. Um, So she'd said, you know, the marker is out of the normal range. And it wasn't massively high. I can't remember what number Mm -hmm. it was, but it was it was under 100. Okay. And I know for some people with CA125, they can get readings mm. of a thousand or more. Yeah. Um, and she said to me at the time, it's not a definitive diagnosis. There are other reasons it can be raised. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But it does mean that you do need further testing to rule it out. Yeah. And that, that was the start of it, really. The start of thinking, yeah. have I got cancer? Yeah. If I have. How bad is it? How long have I got left? I know, it's the start of 
where life completely changes and never goes back to being the same again yeah. doesn't it? no it's never ever the same again never no. um so the week after that i saw the colorectal consultant um because that consultation was still there to check for crow's disease yeah and my doctor said i still want you to go it's still going to be beneficial just to rule out Crohn's. So I went to that. He looked at my records, prodded around on my stomach, asked me loads of questions, and after five or ten minutes said, I want, I'm going to refer you for a, a CT scan. I don't know what you've got, but it's not Crohn's. Right. But if you have a scan, then we'll see what's going on inside. And the gynecology team, when you see them, will be able to tell you more. Yeah. So I left there thinking, right, okay, it's not Chrome. Actually kind of not happy, but I felt a bit relieved, thinking things are getting looked into. I was going to these appointments on my own, and this was well before COVID, because it didn't really occur to me that I might need support from anybody. I thought, yeah, we're just going to, you know, rule out Crohn's, I'll be fine. So I left that appointment. A few days later, I had my CT scan. And then the day after the CT scan, I saw the gynecologist. Yeah. And I remember sitting in the waiting room waiting to go into the appointment and a nurse checking that I was in the right waiting room because the other ladies in there were quite a bit older than me. Yeah, because she oh, was, what, she were you 35, 36? I was 35, yeah. Mm. So we were, I went in to see the gynecologist. He did an internal examination, said, you've got a polyp. I'll send it off to get checked at the lab, but I'm pretty certain it's nothing to worry about. Right. Uh, asked me my symptoms, made me go through everything again. Had a feel of my stomach and did various different checks. And then said, oh, go through to the little room next door. So he was already sat at the, at the desk with his computer. I went and sat down next to him. And he looked over at me and said, we've got your CT results. And because it was the day after I'd had the, the scan, pretty, like when I'd spoken to the doctor and she'd said, we've got your blood test results. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I had my scan yesterday. I'm not expecting him to have the results yet. And he mm. said, no, we've got your results. And it's bad news. And then stopped. Oh, were you on your own? No, I had my ex-partner with me. Right. Who was my partner at the time. Yeah. Um, it's, so I remember him saying, it's bad news. Oh. And I just looked at him and he had his head cocked to one side. And I said, it felt surreal like mm -hmm. it, it wasn't quite happening to me but at the same time it was and I said what do you mean it's bad news you need to give me more to go on and he said you've got a mass on your ovaries on on your ovaries sorry because you've got the bloating it's a sign that it's spread mm -hmm. so before I'd even had a diagnosis they were confident that I had ovarian cancer and that it had spread yeah. 
So then he started talking about you'll have the Macmillan nurse assigned to you. They'll be in touch with you. They're your point of contact if you've got questions. You need to come in and have a biopsy. We need to drain the fluid from your abdomen. Then when you've got, you know, they go into all the technical and mm. all the jargon and, and yeah. completely bamboozling. And oh, I don't, I can't take this in. I don't know what is going on. Yeah, it's too much, isn't it? You know. Yeah, where, and then you uh, handed a pile of leaflets. You can take these home and read them, and yeah, yeah. It's like everything just goes straight over your head. You're not really taking it in. It, you must have been in complete disbelief and shock. Yeah, I was because how could they know it was cancer when I hadn't mm. had a biopsy? How did they know that just from looking at it? Yeah. Couldn't it have been an ovarian cyst? And he didn't tell me how big it was at the time. He just said, there's a mass on your ovary. Mm. I thought, well, that, you know, that could be a cyst, surely, because I know that people can get you know, football-sized cysts. Of course, yeah. How do they know it's cancer mm. without a biopsy? Yeah. So was it then a case of waiting did that to arrange surgery was that the next step for you no the next step then was we left his office I went home sat with my mum and my auntie tried to convince myself it was just a cyst it was nothing really to worry about I might need surgery but I'd be all right um and then my Macmillan nurse rang me the day after to introduce herself and just to kind of go over everything again. Yeah. And I said to her, the, the doctor's talking about, you know, it's cancer and it's spread, but I haven't had a biopsy, so how how do they know? And she said, well, because of the fluid on your abdomen, that's an indication yeah. that it's already spread. And, and explained it in a way that made sense in like a, a you know practical kind of technical way but didn't make sense because how can something like this be happening to me yeah how could I have been having symptoms for so long and so many different doctors and nurses tell me when you were doing the right thing you were going backwards and forwards to the GP for so long yeah Mm -hmm. so they booked me in to have a biopsy and to have the fluid drained so I went I can't remember how long it was maybe a week or two after that and had the biopsy while I was in there because I stayed overnight a consultant walked in like you know just doing the the ward rounds hadn't seen her before haven't seen her since I could hear her outside the curtain reading my notes and then opened the curtain looked at me and said what are you doing here? You're too young. And I said, oh, they think I've got ovarian cancer. And she was really dismissive. And yeah, you know, it can't be because you're 35. And so I was telling myself that, well, that's another person that's telling me I'm too young for this. So it must be Mm. wrong. That biopsy is going to come back. All right. Yeah. It must be something else because she's a consultant. She knows things like this. Yeah. She's studied it. It's just yet another person telling me that it must be something mm-hmm. else. 
it can't be anything like cancer. What a roller coaster of uh, emotions. Yeah. But the whole time, it, I, I remember kind of clutching at straws and every little thing that anybody said to me, trying to reassure myself that right, it can't be cancer, it can't be cancer because that's a nurse, that's a doctor, that's a consultant. Yeah. But at the same time, I had a voice in the back of my head saying, no, this is serious. Mm. This is cancer. So then, it was probably about a week after that I saw a consultant then to get the results of the biopsy um, after they'd had the MDT meeting because then you get terms like MDT thrown at you don't you which mm. obviously now I know what it is I don't think to explain what it is to people if they don't know so it's where they get the radiographers consultants all the different specialty departments to sit around a table and discuss patients and their scans and results and work out a treatment plan a way forward yeah so after they'd had that meeting I saw the consultant and I knew as soon as I walked in it was going to be bad news I could just feel it in the air he had um, a student I think a badge said student midwife on it and she was staring at the floor she didn't even look at me and I could could just feel it in the air I thought Mm. this is it they're about to tell me that I'm dying and he was pretty quick into you know getting into the results and again throwing around words like aggressive non-aggressive low grade high grade stage three but if it was far it'd be this but you just need them to keep it simple in bite-sized chunks and just allow a bit of time just for you to digest that little bit and then move on checking all the time to make sure that you've understood it but complicating it with all the other words makes it impossible to understand and take in yeah because it was saying high grade and low grade Mm. and then aggressive and non-aggressive and it was really confusing me and I had to say to him Mm. hang on slow it down a bit yeah have I got high or low and he said you've got low right um I said does that mean it's aggressive or non-aggressive and he said low grade is non-aggressive so that means it's slow growing yeah right okay he said if you had high grade with the amount of time that you've had symptoms we would have caught this too late. Mm. So at the time, I remember thinking, okay, so I'm quite lucky then because I've got low grade and that means I've got treatment options. That means, yeah, you know, I'm not necessarily dying straight away. And that was the question that I really wanted to ask at the time. How long have I got left? Mm. But I was always too afraid to ask it because I just in case the answer was something I didn't want to hear. Yeah. So it's probably, I can't remember how long that appointment went on for. Probably talked to me for quite a while, but I can't really remember it okay. at that point. And then I went through to a different room then to speak to a registrar to talk about the treatment options. As she was saying, you'll need chemo, you'll need surgery, and then probably chemo after your surgery but we'll see how you get on 
and again it's just all this information being thrown at you mm -hmm. when you do chemo you've got to do this this and this and you can't do that and you've got to do this and it's these are the side effects and yeah here's more leaflets for you to look at mm -hmm. um one of the nurses will go and check when when you can do chemo you know when we can start it and you'll need to do it this interval and just it's just too much isn't it yeah it is it's Far relentless and you feel like you just want to jump off that awful merry-go-round for a while and and stop it but of course nothing stops does it it's just relentless no. on and on and on it's just everything inside me was just wanting to run out of the room yeah and for it all to be over and just to be a big mistake but knowing I can't leave that room because this is something I have to do I have to sit and listen to my treatment options I have to find out what the next steps are because this is something that I have to beat yeah so she sent the nurse outside um to find out when I could start chemo yeah and I remember asking the registrar well, saying to her, my son's 10 months old. I am going to get to see him grow up, aren't I? And it's the head cock mm. that you learn is mm -hmm. about to bring bad news. Yeah. Um, and she said, no, with how advanced your cancer is, how much it's spread, it's highly unlikely your son will have any memories of you. She said that to you? Yeah. Oh, and that was just from the biopsy. That's before I even yeah. started treatment. And I thought, well, even more reason for me not to ask how long I've got then. I don't want mm. to know because I can't have that stuck in my head. So a nurse came back in and said, right, you can start chemo either next week or tomorrow. You don't have to start tomorrow. It's not you're not an urgent case it's just that we've got space we've got a chair available yeah so it's up to you what you want to do and then they worked out with the timings because I said the chemo that I'd have was um paclitaxel yeah paclitaxel and carboplatin that's it mm. yeah that they're the ones that I yeah. had so she said you'll have them every three weeks so you'll have the chemo and then a few days of probably feeling all right you'll have steroids so you'll be you know maybe buzzing a bit have quite a bit of energy mm -hmm. things will start slowing down again you'll have a week where you're probably quite tired and then you'll have a week where you start feeling normal again and then after that week you have your next chemo so it's a cycle of feeling all right feeling tired mm -hmm. feeling all right starting again yeah um so we worked out with the timings with Christmas because then we were coming up to December mm. that if I waited a week for chemo, I would have my tired week over Christmas. And it was my son's first birthday on the 29th of December. Yeah. So I said, I need to be okay for Christmas. It's his first yeah, Christmas, first birthday. I need to have energy mm. to do things with him and to remember it and to be able to enjoy it with him so I said I'll start chemo tomorrow um, and then I said no you, you know you don't have to 
I don't know if they were trying to talk me out of it or not, but say, you don't have to. It's not an urgent case. And I said, I know, but I can't, I can't spend a week sitting at home knowing that I've got cancer, mm-hmm. knowing that I've got chemo coming up and worrying about it and getting upset. I just need to start. I need to yeah. get on with it. And I need my energy to be okay for Christmas. Yeah. Before you tell me about chemo, can you pinpoint in your head, how did you cope? Because I know that many of the listeners will be wondering, how did you cope in, with that diagnosis being told? I think it was just kind of keep your head down, just keep going. Mm. When I was starting to get to the point of suspecting cancer, yeah, I had a friend who'd had skin cancer a few years before. And he was diagnosed at stage four and not given that good a prognosis. But his wife was pregnant at the time of their first son. And he said in that moment he was told cancer. He thought, no, it's, the cancer's not having me. It's not mm-hmm. taking me away. So I'm just going to do everything I can to fight it. Yeah. So even leading up to being, you know, to thinking it might be cancer, he was saying to me, if it is, don't let it take over. Don't take let it control. consume you. Yeah. You yeah. Take control. yeah. Yeah. You need to be in control. He said, the amount of people that I've lost in my family from cancer and they mm. let the cancer take control. He said, you need to be in charge. You mm. need to tell the cancer it's not going to take you away. Was part so of it was just fact finding then was that did you did you look for information on the internet and from cancer charities? No, 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 up until being diagnosed. So from being told that the cancer marker was raised until having that diagnosis, I didn't Google anything. No. Because the small bits of information that I'd picked up about ovarian cancer, I knew that it doesn't tend to be found until the late stages. Mm. It does have this nickname of the silent killer. Women are fobbed off and told it's various different things when actually it's cancer. So I knew that I'd end up finding something that scared me. Yeah. And the statistics, to be honest, are a bit outdated. If you you were to Google um, prognosis um, of ovarian cancer, then already the statistics are out of date and it's it's much better really and everybody of course is very different and so each case is different so you're better off really to talk to your oncologist about that really I would say yeah and to go by anything on the internet yeah I think since my treatment and, and since you know kind of coming out the other side of the treatment and the surgery and with doing so much for awareness I do look at various charity websites to get information yeah. and I think on Cancer Research UK their ovarian cancer can't say the word statistics from yeah. 2018 yeah so and there's so much happened since then you know in yeah, the last couple yeah. Of years I would say that that the treatments there are so many more treatments available I mean obviously there's still a lot of room for improvement but there is there is quite a lot really 
that's different since those statistics came out. And particularly for low grade, I mean, obviously for low grade, that's a tricky disease to treat, isn't it? As you know, and uh, we need far, far more research on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on the one hand, I feel lucky that I'm low grade Mm. because it's slower growing. But on the other hand, it doesn't tend to respond to chemo as well as high grade. Yeah. Um, and the, so therefore the prognosis isn't always as good as mm-hmm. high grade. And yet you still the research, the, 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 Yeah, the research for both of them, well, for all ovarian cancers is so far out of date. Yeah, yeah. And yet despite the fact that they that low grade is very resistant to chemotherapy you still have that chemo don't you so um there's still a lot really a lot of work to do how did you cope with chemotherapy just it felt like a necessary a necessary evil really um I hadn't known anybody personally that had had chemo, so my only experience of it was from TV and films. So yeah. I thought, that's it, your hair falls out instantly. You're sick constantly, can't keep any food down, basically confined to bed. And actually, I didn't find it like that. I did have my moments where I was in bed and where I was really tired and unable to do anything, but it wasn't how I'd expected it to be I didn't have sickness I mean the side effects do vary between the different types of chemo drug and each person reacts differently yes I did have a couple of occasions where I went to hospital to get checks because I had pain in my legs and feet um, Mm. I had headaches but it's it's always just a precaution this this year just phone the Mm. helpline yeah for any concern that you've got we'd rather check you and you'd be okay than to leave you in pain or if you know if there's something else going on was it six six cycles that you had well no I just had it twice you had you had two did you right yeah so I just had two um they thought that I would need three yeah and then surgery was planned for mid-January yeah so I had my first chemo on the 7th of November. Um, so my third one would have been a week before Christmas. So that would have meant yeah. my tired point would have been Christmas week. Yeah. But then they pulled surgery forward until uh, up to the 30th of December. Okay. Um, but also I had a scan. I had a CT scan before, well, before the diagnosis. And then I had one after my second round of chemo and the cancer hadn't shrunk but it also hadn't grown yeah so they said your surgery is now planned for December we need you to be as full strength as possible for your surgery because it will be really invasive okay we need you to have the energy to get through the surgery and for your recovery yeah so we don't want to put you through that third round of chemo so then you had surgery, which was quite a biggie, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. They'd said at the point of diagnosis, you'll need a hysterectomy, 
definitely one ovary taking out. If we can leave one, the other ovary, we will do because we don't want to put you through the menopause. Um, you will possibly need a stoma. We don't know whether it'll be colostomy or really ostomy, mm. which at the time I didn't know what the difference was. We'll have to wait until we go inside to see how much bowel we take out. We think that you will more than likely need to lose your spleen and you will possibly need a bit shaving off your liver, but we'll know more when we go inside. Mm, it's major surgery. Yeah. So pre-surgery, I'd, I'd been to see the stoma nurses and they marked me up for sites for my stoma, well, possible yeah. stoma. Um, they gave me more leaflets <laughs> on what your diet will be like after surgery, um, the difference between colostomy and ileostomy. Yeah. So much information. Yeah. given so much info. But I just felt like this is something that I need to do. I've got to get through this period so that I can recover and come out the other side of it. Yeah. So we had Christmas, Bobby's birthday. I went to hospital actually on his birthday because it was scheduled for the day after. And I remember leaving the house thinking, I don't know if I'm coming back, but mm-hmm. trying not to think too much about it and to just it's it's kind of hard to put into words unless you've been through it mm. try not to let those bad thoughts and the anxiety take over because if it does I probably wouldn't have been able to get out of bed yeah and I needed to be out of bed I needed to be doing things to take my mind off it and to get me through it so I went for the surgery the morning of the surgery all the different people from different teams came in so we knew that I would have the colorectal team we knew that I'd have the gynecology team yeah there was a possibility that I would need more surgical teams depending on what they found so I had the anaesthetist come and see me the registrar came to see me they were signing you know signing different consent forms being given different leaflets more leaflets information yeah <laughs> I, I couldn't even tell you how many leaflets I was given between the different appointments talking through my pain relief choices did I want an epidural during surgery letting me know what to expect when I woke up from surgery yeah. um, they knew that I'd definitely need to be in the high dependency unit possibly intensive care for a short period just kind of letting me know what to expect really yeah when I came around but also it was very much we don't know what we're going to find when we get in there so we don't know what you're going to wake up with or without what we're going to have to take from you so it's it just been so frightening yeah the beforehand before the surgery I remember thinking they're telling me that the surgery is going to be long. Mm-hmm. They're telling me it's expensive and it's a long recovery. But I can do that. I've got support around me. I'll get through that. Yeah. The thing that really scared me was the conversation that they would have with me when I came out of surgery, when they tell me how much of the cancer they got out. Mm-hmm. 
because I remember thinking I could go through this surgery that they're telling me is really extensive and has a long recovery and I could still have cancer at the end of it and I could still be dying. Mm. There's no guarantees, is there? You go through such extensive surgery, there are no guarantees how you're going to do with it. Yeah, Mm. no one knows. They can tell you the best case scenario, the worst case, but nobody has any idea until they actually open you up and look inside. Mm. So no, I, I, I can remember all those moments as you're telling me I, it takes me right back <laughs> to it's, it's like I, I feel like it's like a video that plays in my head yeah when I'm talking about going down for surgery I can see me being wheeled down on the bed yeah. and, and at the time thinking I don't need to be wheeled I can walk mm. yeah I know exactly how I, you... I, I, my legs are still working I'm perfectly yeah. capable of walking I know, I know. It's it is. You're right. It is like a video that plays through in your mind, um, and yeah. there are moments that you just never ever forget. So you eventually get down to surgery, and then you come round. What was the first yeah. thing you thought when you came round from your surgery? I remember feeling my stomach. Yeah. To see if I had a stoma bag, and I did. Um, so then it was right so I've got a bag it's on the right side that means they've taken more bowel out than if it was on the other side yeah so you immediately Um, knew it then was an an ileostomy yeah Mm. yeah I mean quite dazed and confused because of all the drugs that I was on so couldn't quite think you know what it meant and but I just remember thinking, that's it, I've got a stoma. Now I just need to find out if it's permanent or if they'll be able to reverse it at some point. Yeah. And I remember waking up and feeling really hot. It was like a hot, what I now know as a hot flush. And just not wanting any covers, any clothes on me. But I was in intensive care, surrounded by other patients and all the medical teams. And they, they kept wanting to kind of preserve my modesty. <laughs> I don't I don't care yeah. just get the covers off me I'm too hot oh. it was like instantly I was having the hot flushes from the menopause yeah. as soon as they'd taken my ovaries out um, and I was I remember asking really early on for a fan saying I need a fan I need to be cooled down yeah I, I don't even know if I what I was saying it was actually coming out like that I don't know how much sense mm-hmm. I'll have made um, but the, the doctors, the consultants and surgeons came to see me while I was in intensive care. And I remember saying, how much did you get? And the bit that sticks in my mind was them saying, we've got 99% of it. Right. And I thought, that's it. Yeah. I can relax now. They've got most of it out. I'm going to be all right. So the rest of what they said was just a blur because... All I was waiting for was how much they'd got. Yeah. That's the, the other organs and the other parts of the surgery, that was, at that moment, that was irrelevant. Mm. Because I had a chance that I was going to live and survive. Yeah. How long did it take you to recover from the surgery? How long were you in hospital for? 
Well, they've told me before I went in to expect to be, well, that I would be there for two weeks, but to expect to be there longer. Mm. And I ended up coming home 12 days after surgery. Right. So I think I spent one night in intensive care. The surgery was about eight and a half hours long. So I'd gone down first thing in the morning, about eight o'clock in the morning. I was the only surgery they did for that team. So the surgery was eight and a half hours. I spent that night in intensive care and then they moved me to high dependency. Yeah. I had two nights on high dependency and then I was up on the gynecological ward. I spent probably a couple of nights in a room with three other ladies and then they moved me to a room on my own. And every day that the doctors were coming around and doing the ward rounds, they'd say, oh, your observations are better than yesterday you're looking better than yesterday you're doing a lot better than anyone expected mm. and then they'd come around the next day and they'd say it again oh you're doing even better than yesterday so mm. 12 days and I went home and it was difficult it was it was really difficult when when they say to you it's a long hard recovery yeah I think it's it, yeah that's a bit of an understatement really what was the hardest bit about the recovery was it the was it coping with the ileostomy or was it coping with the pain or what what in your words do you feel the, that was the worst of it I don't feel that the pain was the worst bit I mean I was in a lot of pain mm. but I had a lot of medication they gave me yeah. a lot of painkillers while I was still in hospital I learned kind of the handover times with the nurses and when they when they were doing the 6am medication round and saying, are you in any pain? I learned really quickly to say yes. Mm. Because if I said no, then it would be at least four hours, five hours before I'd get the chance to have painkillers. So if in the, you know, from 6am up until maybe lunchtime, I did start having pain. If I asked somebody for the painkillers, they'd say, yes, we'll go and get you some, but it'd be a long wait for it. So yeah. I'd get it at 6am, whether I needed it or not. Sent me home with Oromorph and Codeine and every painkiller you can imagine. So that wasn't too bad. I think it was the loss of independence. Yeah. I needed help showering. I couldn't make my own food I couldn't get my own mm. drinks I couldn't look after the children no that must have been very very difficult it was it was really difficult mm. I, I was just desperate to get back to doing the school run and mm. to, doing kind of the normal things mm. that I've been doing before making tea for the kids playing with them changing nappies Mm. I couldn't do bedtimes with Bobby because I couldn't pick him up because of the risk of a hernia yeah it took probably took me a few weeks to even be able to stand up straight because they'd opened mate from just below the bra line to the top Mm. of the pubic area yeah so my muscles were just completely shot I couldn't stand up straight even walking from the sofa 
to the kitchen which mm. is a really short distance would leave me out of breath yeah it takes a long time to recover from such major surgery doesn't it Hannah it does yeah and and even though I had my parents around me and my partner at the time mm. and friends were helping with the school run so I was lucky that I had so much support but it's really difficult kind of getting used to having to ask people to help yeah and to to accept it really that you can't do everything for yourself that you don't know how long it will take you to be able to do the things that you were doing before while getting used to a new body yeah I looked completely different I'd sit in tears on an evening because I just didn't recognize myself in the mirror while I'd had chemo I had the cold cap so I didn't completely lose my hair but I had patches yeah that were missing and I just didn't recognize myself and I'm looking in the mirror and you've also you know you've got the huge scar right down you and then you've got the stoma as well yeah, I can understand yeah, why I had, feel that way. Yeah, I had the big scar going down, and then I had smaller scars dotted around from the drains and yeah. biopsies and things that I'd had. Just yeah, my body just looked completely different. I lost twenty one pounds in yeah. the twelve days that I was in hospital. Oh gosh, that's a lot of weight. And I with know. that, I mean, some some of that will be. Some of that will be, you know, my organs and yeah. the various things that are removed, but also just body fat. Mm. And your muscle mass as well goes, and that you're so weak, you know, because you're not yeah. using your muscles. It takes a long, long time to claw your way back up again, doesn't it, really? It does, yeah. How, how did the children cope? Bobby was too young to really know what was going on mm. Neve was four at the time and was aware that I'd been ill so when I started chemo I said I'm having medicine that will help me feel better will help my poorly tummy because she was too young to understand what cancer was so we didn't ever use the word cancer no I just no. used to say my poorly tummy yeah she knew that it was something serious because she'd have been able to pick up on everything in the house. Yeah, they do. And she'd cry when I'd put her to bed at night saying, I don't want you to die, mummy. And it was just heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. And she knew that I'd gone to have surgery to take the bad stuff out of my tummy. And I'd say to her, you need to make a list of things that we can do in the summer. Yeah. When I'm better, when I'm on my feet, me and you will go and do loads of things, just the two of us, because it's taking the bad stuff out of my tummy and I'm going to be all right. Yeah. So to give her something to focus on. That was good. That was a good idea. Give her that hope and something to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was also for myself as well. Yeah. At the time, I'd I'd say it's for her, but it was probably for myself as well to to focus on. I am going to get through it. And this is what I'm going to be able to do. So she had things like a trip to Blackpool. (laughs) She wanted to go to a local petting zoo that's got an ice cream parlour. 
play gym, like just typical four-year-old things. Yeah. Go for pizza, go for ice cream, <laughs> go to the cinema. <laughs> They're all very simple things, aren't they? That's, yeah. that's what matters in life, I think. Yeah. yeah, she just wanted to spend time with me. She just wasn't that yeah. bothered about what we were doing. It was just... Yeah. Mummy needs to get better and then we can go for ice cream. Yeah. Oh, what a wonderful mummy you are because that was such a good idea to do that. How did you cope with your ileostomy? It was really difficult. Mm. Really, really difficult. I remember when I was in hospital, um, one of the first times I had a shower and the nurse... Well, she had to help me shower. Even I, took me into the shower room, and I could just about stumble, you know, sort of stagger into the shower room. And I sat in the chair, and that just took all of my energy. So she showered me and changed my bag. And I remember saying to her, "It stinks. Is it always going to smell that bad? Am I going to get used to it?" Mm. And she said. You will get used to it, and it won't always smell like this. She said, and to be honest, I can't really smell anything because mm. I've changed that many different people's. I'm just used to it. And I remember looking at it and just thinking, what on earth is that? Mm. I've now got a piece of my internal organ sticking out through my stomach. What do I do with it? How am I supposed to look after that? Yeah. And and just being given all this information of you need to do this to, you know, eat this to thicken your output up and look after it. And this is how you change your bag. And did you have many mishaps with the bag sticking? Not sticking. I, mm. I remember having a few with it leaking. Yeah. When I, I remember being in the room on my own when they put me in a private room mm. and to empty it, I was sort of hovering over the toilet because nobody had, had told me even something as simple as how to empty it. Mm. It said, you know, you, you, un, you unwind it and this is where it comes out. Yeah. But nobody had said, most people find it easiest to do it sitting on the toilet and put it between your legs so it goes down so it's almost like you're in a position of having a traditional poop yeah um, it's just that it's gonna you know go straight down the toilet yeah and then you get a bit of toilet paper and you wipe around the, the opening of the bag just to clean it up mm. and then you can't smell it yeah so I was hovering so I had mishaps there and I'd have to call the nurses and say I'm really sorry, it's gone on the floor. Yeah. I can't clean it up myself. I'm just feeling mortified, thinking that's my bodily fluid all over the floor and I can't even clean it up. I've got to ask someone else to clean it up. Oh, I can only imagine. And there was a couple of times where it leaked when I was laying in the bed. Mm. And I'd have to press the buzzer and say it's leaked please can someone help me change the bag and I also need my sheets changing and I might need a shower so I'll need someone to help me shower yeah it was a lot to get used to and of course, my stomach with, is um, quite 
I was going to say with a, with an ileostomy as well, you have to be so careful because of the, the excrement that goes around the skin can really excoriate the skin because the, the part of the bowel that comes out at that part of, of your abdomen, it means there's lots and lots of, of gastric enzymes still in and it can make the skin very sore and excoriate the skin. So Yeah, so yeah that's the problem that I had when I was in there. The, the stomach yeah. acid, if, if the output sticks on your skin, it's got stomach acid in, so yeah. it basically burns mm. it, like, eats your skin away. And my stomach... I don't have much intestine sticking out. If you see some people's online, you know, if you Google it, or if you're on Instagram, people share pictures of theirs, and they'll have maybe a few centimeters sticking out, which means that their output is more likely to come straight out and into the bag. Whereas my my stomach sits really flush to my skin, and actually is almost inverted a little bit, mm. so it it doesn't always goes to go into the bag so it's more likely mm-hmm. to go and sit on my skin that's right um so lot in the early days lots of leaks really really sore painfully sore skin i was a regular um at the hospital with my stoma nurses and they'd mm-hmm. check it over and i had absolutely no idea how many different types of bags there are the different companies that produce them, the different types that they make. I just, I don't, I don't know if I'd really thought that much about it, but would have just assumed it was. You've got two types of stoma, and kind of one bag fits all. I know it's a minefield, isn't it? Luckily, the stoma yeah. nurses are always so brilliant, so knowledgeable. But what I love about you, Hannah, is that you've shared so openly on social media, on Instagram, and I've seen the the photographs that you've shared. And I really think that you're very inspiring for doing that, because I think it helps so many other people with with whatever cancer causes them to have um, a stoma. But it helps so many people. You know, it's so it is ever so difficult. It's such a big change. Yeah, I think. Part of the reason that I'm so open is because I felt lonely. Mm. When I was going through the diagnosis, my treatment, recovering from surgery, I felt really, really alone. Mm. Macmillan suggested um, finding support groups for me. Yeah. And I thought, if I go to a stoma support group, those people might have sto- you know, it's the same stoma as me or have some of the same experiences, but they don't have the same reason for having one. Mm. So they're not going to fully understand everything that I'm going through. If I go to an ovarian cancer support group, because even after I was diagnosed and had my treatment, they were still saying, I'm young. You know, I'm too young for it. Mm. It's older older ladies typically and I thought I don't want to sit in a room with women in their 60s 70s 80s who might have gone through the same or similar treatment but are at a different point in their life so they're not having to to deal with changing nappies Mm -hmm. potty training all the things that come with having such such young children 
and trying to navigate that side of my life as well yeah no it's not the same for you is it your stage of life where you've still you've got children you're still very young and it's difficult isn't it for um for you to relate to women or people that are older um I know yeah, yeah, because have the group haven't they now um for younger yeah people. I mean yeah they have and all, although you know of it looking back an ovarian cancer support group might have been beneficial and might have helped me at the time what I needed was help getting back to normal getting back to my normal life with the children yeah and I just wanted to be around people who were a similar sort of age yeah yeah, I think it's, it's getting better, isn't it? I think the the support that's there, but you do have to look for it. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the people that I've followed have come across on Instagram, it's kind of almost accidental where mm. you'll find one person and then either they suggest you follow someone else or you'll see them talking to someone else or you'll look at their profile and then start following and, it just kind of snowballs a bit and you just find yeah you find your tribe you do don't you, you? find your people yeah. but yeah you've it, the support that's out there is a lot of it set up by people mm-hmm. that have been through it themselves you've come a long way since then and how are things for you now Hannah well I'm on lectures all now yeah I had a year thinking well being told that there was no evidence of disease so I went from being told your son will grow up with no memories of you to there's no evidence of disease just go and live your life get back to normal and thinking I don't know how on earth I do that I don't know what normal is yeah and then just at the point of thinking right energy wise and strength wise I can do a little bit more yeah then start with the pandemic I just knocked everything back again <laughs> um, did, yeah. but but yeah but I had a year, a year of being in the clear but still very much aware my oncologist had very clearly said to me when I left um, the appointment go and live your life get back to normal figure out what your normal is but it's a matter of when it comes back, not if. Right. We don't know how long it will, will be, but it will come back. So I had a year. I wasn't on any treatment. I was getting checked every three months. They were checking my blood for the markers and there was no sign of it. And then I went in because I'd had about, well, it was a year after my surgery, I went in sort of gallstone pains thinking that my gallbladder needed to come out so they went in and with a camera they saw the cancer oh no and they saw that it had grown mm-hmm. but even at that point when they physically seen it with a camera and they showed me the photographs of it it still wasn't showing in my blood and it still wasn't showing on the ct scan mm. so that was in the january a year after my surgery so then it took up until june was showing in my blood and on mm-hmm. a scan by the point it showed up on a scan it was the size of a pea 
so my oncologist put me on letrozole yeah which he said had started as a breast cancer drug but they knew it had a success rate in ovarian cancer yeah well for people that don't know what that is it's um it's an aromatase inhibitor and it's it what it really does is it blocks the the estrogen so hopefully the estrogen feeds the cancer so in blocking it it means yeah. it stop, starves the cancer of the estrogen yeah basic yeah, way they, of explaining they, they've taken both my ovaries in the surgery and yeah. um, before surgery they'd said we're definitely taking one maybe two but we want to leave one if we can so that you're not in the menopause mm. and I said I don't I don't want you to leave it. I want you to take them both. Mm-hmm. I'd rather be in menopause than have the threat of it coming back in the, the other ovary. Yeah. Just take any chance of it, you know, of it being anywhere. But I wasn't able to take HRT because they knew that my cancer was hormone receptive. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we started the letrozole. Are you getting too many side effects from that? Hot flushes. Yeah. Uh, I was prescribed antidepressants to help with the hot flushes. I think I was quite lucky, really. I didn't have too many Mm. after surgery, but they did feel quite intense. So because I couldn't take HRT, I was prescribed antidepressants. Yeah. So that calmed the hot flushes down a lot. But then when I was prescribed letrozole, hot flush is one of the side effects so I do get them probably one or two a day yeah they're not too bad but it's normally if I've been cooking and I'm standing in front of the hot oven on stove or if I've been rushing around and doing things with the kids I just have to sit down for a bit if I'm at home Mm -hmm. take my top off (laughs) (laughs) Uh, obviously not if I'm in public but just (laughs) I've learned I've learned that when I'm going out I need to dress in layers. Yeah. So that I can take layers off if I do get a hot brush. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. But yeah, in, in terms of side effects, no, I'm not really getting many now mm. from the electrosol. That's good. And they check, are you being checked by your oncologist every three months? Every three months. I yeah. last spoke to him in December. Yeah. And I asked him when. I'll be able to go to like longer breaks between the checkups. And so I've got my next one in March. And he said, if my markers are still stable, because we know the electrosol's working, my markers have come down to single digits. Mm-hmm. If my cancer's still stable, then he will move me to four months. Yeah. Between checkups. He doesn't want to go too long in between. No. And of course, you can um, still, if you notice anything that's not quite right, you can still go back there straight away, just contact them. Yeah. 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 I can still contact the chemo helpline. Yeah. Because I'm classed as being on treatment. So if I'm unwell, instead of going to A&E, I can phone them. And if they've got space, they'll get me straight in and get me checked over. So I have been in hospital a few times since surgery. So it's just over two years now since surgery. Mm-hmm. And I've, but every time I've been in, it's been because of a complication with stoma. Yeah, yeah. I haven't had to go in because the cancer's causing me any issues. Okay. 
You're doing so well. You're just amazing. <laughs> it feels it feels a bit like almost like I'm telling somebody else's story. Yes, it is like that, isn't it? I know. Yeah. yeah. And and when I'm talking to someone new about it, they'll sometimes be quite apologetic and you know it, stop if you start feeling upset or yeah. you don't want to talk about it and I think it's fine I'm I'm just used to talking about it now mm-hmm. it's just become my life it becomes some like, kind of a rhetoric doesn't it that you you repeat it on automatic pilot almost um, yeah you know your story off by heart and it and it becomes less emotive in your head as if you are detached from it in some ways. Yeah, very much. And mm. then I'll see things on, on Instagram where it's you know, signs of trauma and being mm. detached from your emotions is a sign of And I'm like, well, obviously, <laughs> I have been through a big trauma. Of course. But in a way, it helps being detached mm. because I can talk about it without being upset. It's also a coping strategy is that you don't have to, you, you can talk about it in a, de, in a slightly detached way, but equally, if we were to speak privately off, off um, away from the show about both of our experiences, we both know how real this is. It's not that yeah. we're ignorant of what we've gone through or completely detached. It's just the fact that it, it, to get from, to go live from one day to the next, you can't have it in your head all the time about what exactly is going on. You've got to be remain just slightly detached. How are you? How are you feeling? I know you've not been feeling very well, Hannah. Are you okay? Um, we've been online for quite a long time. And I really just want to finish on whether you can tell me all about what you've been doing to raise awareness because you've done some excellent work some some brilliant work with a video that I've seen and March is coming up March is ovarian cancer awareness month in the UK so if you can tell the listeners what you've been doing because you have done so much I know you're not working now but you're making up for it outside of work think I'm doing more with this than when I was working <laughs> so to, well today's world cancer day because I'm aware that people won't be listening to this until March yeah. so it's the 4th of February today so we've posted the first video where myself and two other ladies that had ovarian cancer mm-hmm. have, uh, we've all been working together and it's people from around the world holding up a piece of paper saying I was diagnosed at and then the age they were diagnosed at because we want to break the stigma Mm. that it doesn't affect younger ladies when we know that it does so we've posted that video today with information on symptoms Mm. what to do if you've got symptoms what you know what to say to your doctor basically your next steps because for New Zealand and Australia it's their awareness month in February so Jane from Cure Hour Ovarian Cancer has been involved and she wanted to post it for February Um, so we've done the first video today and then in March when it's our awareness month I'll be posting another video with 
the ladies from the UK. Yeah. Well, and from other pe- other countries that have sent me pictures in, but majority are from the UK. And it'll be same information, what symptoms are, what, where to go if you've got them, what to do, your next steps, yeah. where to find different information. And I'm also going to get people who not just have been affected by ovarian cancer because we need to get the message outside of the cancer community. Yeah. Um, to hold up the hand and write the word beach. And each letter of beach stands for a different symptom. Yeah. And then there'll be a caption to post with the picture with the symptoms listed and you know what to do if you've got them. Yeah. What what your steps are. Because it's all right talking amongst the cancer community about ovarian cancer and the symptoms and having people that are follow that have got breast cancer, bowel, cervical, be aware of the symptoms. But they've got an awareness of cancer already. Yeah. They've already got something in them that says, if something doesn't feel right in my body, I need it checking. Yeah. We need to get out of the community and the group that we've built. It, we need to get the people that have no awareness that probably how I felt before my diagnosis of knowing that cancer affects one in two but still thinking it won't be me Mm. or if it is me it'll be found because symptoms get checked out I think there's still quite a lot of naivety people don't want to believe it can happen to them Mm -hmm. I didn't want to believe it could happen to me because I think cancer is still seen by a lot of people as being an automatic death sentence. Yeah. When we know that it isn't. No, you're right. I think I think it's very much a case of making the symptoms known to know your body and to recognize if the symptoms are not right for you and to keep on advocating for yourself, keep going back to the doctor like you did. And also to believe that this could happen to anybody. And like you say, you were 35 when you were diagnosed. And yeah, it happens to young people. Yeah. And we know also, don't we, Hannah, that it happens to younger people than you too, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's people that I speak to in their 20s. Yeah. And... You know, there's there's one person who sent me her photo and she was 18 when she was diagnosed. Yeah. yeah. So we know that there's different types of ovarian cancer that statistically do affect different age groups, but nobody is too young for cancer. No. Of any type. Even people that are followed with bowel cancer, lung cancer, mm-hmm. have been told it won't be bowel, lung, whichever they they actually have, because they're too young. Mm. I know. Well, I really wish you all the success with that campaign, because I I just think it's a wonderful campaign. I think that's wonderful. I think you're wonderful. And if any of the listeners wanted to follow you, 
or find out more about what you're doing with the campaign, I know that they can obviously look for Cure Our Ovarian Cancer Charitable Trust, which is, is founded by Jane Ludman, who you're, you're um, collaborating with. Yeah. And I can put that in the show notes, but is there anything, can the listeners follow you anywhere? Yeah, I'm on Instagram. And my username is no ovaries and disturba. Okay, I'll put that in the show notes then. Shall yeah, I? I feel like I'm, I'm getting a bit nasally with the cold, so <laughs> I just want to make sure that people can understand. Yeah, I'll put it. In the but show. yeah, yeah, if you put it in the note, yeah. So anyone can follow me, message me. I'm very open. Sometimes I wonder if I'm too open, but then I think I need to be because someone's got to say it so that people don't think they're on their own. Um, yeah. I'm also on TikTok and Twitter, but I don't really use those as much. Okay, so it's mainly Instagram. Mainly Instagram, yeah. yeah. Okay. Just keep something in reserve for yourself and your little ones. Yeah. In all of this. It's about, you've got to have a boundary. So my advice is keep a little bit for you. Yeah. Well, I'm, thank I'm... you. Thank you, Hannah. No, it's all right. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate this, especially because you've not been well with the cold and you've taken all that time to tell me your story. But I know that you're going to help many, many people. So thank you so much. No, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening today. To hear future episodes of this podcast, please go ahead and subscribe now. I look forward to sharing more inspiring conversations with women who are living with ovarian cancer. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other and enjoy all that life has to offer.